Welcome to Lessons from History with Daisy and Elizabeth. In this, the second episode of our two-parter on school buildings, we are delighted to introduce our first guest, Fiona Cobb. So Fiona is a structural engineer with a wealth of experience working on educational buildings. In 2003, her book, The Structural Engineer's Pocketbook, was first published, and it's now on its third edition, having sold over 40,000 copies and earned a place in London Science Museum. And her success is even more impressive in the context of the male-dominated profession of engineering and its adjacent fields of architecture and construction. Fiona, we're delighted that you could join us today. Before we get on to the pressing topic of school buildings, we'd like to ask you a little about your own school days. Could you tell us about them? Well, yes, I I was thinking about this just in the context of coming to speak to you. I mean, I should start by saying, I suppose, thank you very much for asking me to come. And that's a very nice introduction. And I also think, oh, who's that marvellous person? So it's very kind of you to say, oh, it's me. Um, I suppose I should say that I grew up in Scotland and so the education system is slightly different to here in England where I live and I went to state schools all the way through. I went to a single form primary school, single form entry and then transferred to a 12 form entry secondary comprehensive with over 2,000 pupils and thought to be the biggest secondary in Scotland at the time. That's in the 1980s. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking. It was it was a very difficult experience. So uh, certainly the early years, it was challenging. But later on, you know, I always enjoyed the academic side of things. And uh, and so, you know, the later years, I've got much more fond, fond memories. But but I think at the start, it was it was pretty tough. And I think lots of people find secondary school a bit of a shock don't they but I, I couldn't recommend a school with that many pupils in it really and what a transition too to go from single entry into into 12 forms God. yes I, I, I really it's only with my own children going to secondary school that I realized that was really odd <laughs> I think schools in Scotland generally are bigger uh, anyway but this this one was a real behemoth uh, so yes and were both schools mixed uh, did they both have girls and boys yes yes both co- co-educational yes and what stage did you start to get interested in well not necessarily engineering I suppose but but maybe the sort of maths and science route well I can definitely say that I had this marvellous maths teacher called Mr Elgin terrifying he was very very strict but really wonderful mathematician and I wasn't very confident with maths really and he just made it easy do you know that someone's a good teacher and they love their subject and it's you know it's just very uh, inspiring really so that's that helped with the maths side of things but really my family had, I, I, no one had been to university so that wasn't really on the cards at all um, and so rather by accident I had a conversation with a, a woman she she was helping with my, some, my physics um, hires that's the sort of AS label I suppose and one day she just sort of said to me why aren't you going to university and you know just having someone ask you that question sort of changed you know it's one of these sliding doors moments isn't it so that's that changed everything my mum and dad kind of got you know suddenly oh well maybe we should look at this uh, and so off off I went my dad was an engineer and so that really appealed the sort of practical application of things and later I've discovered you know it, it, it you can combine it a more artistic sort of side 
So it's maybe not obvious when you're at university, but there's obviously scope for other things as well. It's not just hard technical subjects. So it's a great job. At the end of a project, you have a tangible thing that is there and you know is, is going to affect people's lives for a long time to come. Usually I meet people when they're at a sort of a, a turning point of some sort, you know, either their family's getting bigger and they're adding to their house or the school is getting bigger and they're moving to a new building or... Um, you know, and you helping them on that way is just really nice. I'm interested when you started to do the hires, did the girls drop off from the maths and the physics? Did you find yourself more in the minority? I have no memory of that. I do have a memory. So Mr Elgin, the marvellous maths teacher, was poached by the local independent school and went off to be head of department halfway through a sort of key moment in our maths career, really. And it was obviously a devastating blow for the maths department because they sort of scrambled a bit to try and find a teacher to to fill the gap, you know, halfway through the year or something. It It wasn't good timing. But I remember that class predominantly being dominated by girls, actually. I don't have a strong memory of the boys in the class. Uh, my friend and I used to get into trouble because we chatted up the back and I think the teacher had decided we were duffers. But she went to be a maths teacher and I, I was an engineer, so I think we were just, you know, jolly along at the back. But um, the, this gap in teaching was ended up being filled by one of the pupils. I mean, it was one of the chaps I do remember in the class. He, he was like the only person in school who was applying to... Oxbridge or something and doing it all DIY of course and and he took over the, the teaching of the class and practically the, the, the teacher would say I think I think it's like this uh, what do you think Douglas and he, <laughs> and he would say yes yeah you know carry on with the explanation how to do it I mean it was a real um, I think in some ways you know it was quite, some some of these things sound a bit painful really but um, it, it, it did mean that it sort of instills you with the confidence because you just have to get on with it and I think if I, I do worry a little bit about the marking schemes and all of the, you know, everything being set out so precisely for everyone now and you work through it and you do your learning objectives and not having to find your own ways. I'm not sure, you know, I think we need a middle ground somewhere. You do need to make a few missteps, don't you? And have room to do that. And I sometimes think education is rather tightly scripted sometimes. And, you know, there's consequences of, of failing a test. We did an episode recently on exams and history of exams. And you're absolutely right that, that you didn't have mark schemes uh, <laughs> with the first exams. Even, yeah, even even sort of relatively recently, you didn't have, uh, you know, these very tight mark schemes. So that's absolutely right. They were, things, were, things weren't as tightly prescribed as they are now with exams. Yes, yeah, good point. Maybe, yes, it's, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because obviously it's a bit fairer on the people who are having to muck through themselves. Uh, that it's a bit more well-defined. It's a genuine tension between, I think, people think transparency is always good, but there are trade-offs to it, actually, in the case of exams. The trade-offs you talk about and other ones around maybe exams getting very predictable. So, yeah, interesting to hear your perspective on that. It's something we've talked about. But I'd say that uh, I was just thinking back as well about other really formative things at school. And we had a, the one benefit of having a very large school. So it was a huge Duke of Edinburgh programme run by the, a marvellous PE teacher. I mean, completely voluntarily. And, and we went off and just sort of let loose in the Cairngorms doing expeditions, you know, took it all for granted at the time, but you know, if you sort of trudged up these mud rows, I think people would call it resilience now, wouldn't, wouldn't they? It's just really very fond memories, all the best best stories come from, you know, mishaps or 
funny things that happen so and i think you realize more as well that you know how grateful you are for the teachers who organize them because I, I took school trips for granted as a student and then i became a teacher and i thought hang on a minute <laughs> why am i uh spending all this time uh, do, doing this so yeah they are they're a commitment for everyone aren't they but but really good as you say oh yes it was a labor of love for him i mean it was many many weekends of his life i think every year uh, dedicated to us so um, you know really fantastic so in the light of all the school buildings being in the news we wanted to ask you some some questions about your experience working in education and i guess the first question would be do you think there are some very particular challenges when it comes to building or indeed renovating school buildings that you don't get with other kind of structures Yes. So I think there are probably really specific technical challenges for schools. There's uh, an interesting collection of, of spaces. You've got large hall spaces. You've got collections of classrooms and music rooms that need acoustic requirements. You've got large volumes of people to move around safely and escape for fire. But many of those things are similar for any other type of, of building. There are lots of people who come together to design a school. You know, you'll have the architects, the structural engineers. You know, we'll deal with the kind of how do you make things stand up in very rough terms. Uh, you'll have services engineers who deal with pipes and wires and ventilation and making it a comfortable place to be in. You'll have people who deal with acoustics and fire, cost, environmental sustainability. So there's a whole range of people. And if you ask any of those about, you know, what are the challenges, they'll all give you a different answer. So I can only really answer from a sort of structural perspective. And I think, you know, apart from, say, choice of materials and maybe how that might affect how the school feels, because, um, you can, you know, you change the spaces by what you make them out of, there's a, there's a big issue to do with uh, risk. And it, it really boils down to the fact that if you have a, a one building and you put lots of young people into it, you're effectively putting your next generation into one place. So you're putting all of your eggs in one basket. Um, and that sort of really raises the, the game, shall we say, in terms of being very careful about safety and, and things like that. And so back in the 2000s, there was an earthquake in Italy where some schools that had been extended not very well collapsed. And there was a real tragedy. It probably didn't make the news here particularly, but within a few years, all of the regulations had been tightened up massively. So we all recognise school buildings as sort of red brick buildings. In my mind, that's how they are, you know, Victorian red brick buildings with big windows but um, under the current regulations you can't really do that anymore I mean you can but you have to work rather hard to do it you you have to have a building with a frame in it now anything over one story has to be framed so that if some damage happens to one corner of it it'll sag a bit but it won't it won't all fall down so in, in terms of structures that's a very technical description but it, it's all about sort of safety side of things and really protecting young people because it, most people live in an urban area and there's lots of schools and you don't think about it too much but I think you know we're all familiar with the 1960s Aberfan tragedy and that's exactly the situation that this sort of regulation is trying to prevent happening in that case the problem was outside of the school rather than inside but it's protecting a community so are you saying those iconic red buildings that we think of you know the red brick building that we think of as school buildings and we talked about those in our, in our previous episode it, it wouldn't be possible to build those now they'd, they'd basically be against the regulations they wouldn't be against the regulations what i should say is that masonry buildings are difficult to build now and we don't build buildings in the same way so those buildings are really thick massive walls 
and very substantial construction. And I think there's probably enough weight and enough framing in those that it would work. You would have to take a very sharp pencil to your calculations and you might have to add in a few little helping hands here and there. You know, modern masonry buildings are, are really much more complicated. They might look bricky on the outside, but uh, you've got these layers inside and they're made of thin layers, so they're sort of less massive than they were. There's less sort of substance to them. And so that's probably what makes a difference. So it's not that they're unsafe, but it's, um, yeah, sorry, scare you there. <laughs> yeah. One of the things we were talking about is that probably the the largest single group of buildings left in the sort of school estate, we, we were saying there's about, there's about 3,000 pre-1919 schools really? uh, that are still, still exist. I assume a lot of those are brick. So it's interesting that there's still that many of them left. But, but obviously, you know, we're not, we're not building like that anymore, but they've, they've survived. And I, I guess one of the things we were thinking about is, do you think those buildings stand the test of time? There are so many of them left. Most people, if they haven't been to a school like that, will probably know one. Do you, do you think, they've, you know, they've got their value? Or do you, do you think maybe we'd be better off with, with, with more modern buildings? Like, what, what do you feel about them? I suppose when you say, do, do they stand the test of time? You know, structurally and in the materials, clearly, yes. They've weathered well. They're very substantial. They were built really good quality materials and, and obviously could carry on quite happily for a long time to come if, if they were well maintained. I have fond memories of being in buildings like that in my school life. So from that point of view, in terms of the, the quality of the, the building, yes. The issue is what other things do we want from a school building? And they clearly worked well in terms of ventilation. I think that's you know, seemed to come through is that when we were in the COVID-19 situation that they were well ventilated and and they could, you know, in terms of health of the population, they they seemed to be able to, to cope with that. But if we think about other modern challenges like climate change mitigation and, and net carbon zero, having extremely large windows and lots of ventilation is about the polar opposite of what modern buildings are trying to do. So... I think to keep going, they'll they'll have to adapt to that challenge, and there'll there'll be a lot of retrofitting. But I think that's the same for a lot of building stock, not just those schools. I mean, Victorians built things to last, didn't they? They they didn't do things perhaps it's almost as though they were doing it for the first time. They didn't have the idea that anything was going to change. It was the future, and yeah, yeah. You know, and they they did such a great job in many many ways we were really lucky well that, that ventilation point is fascinating because in our previous episode we were looking at one of the big london school architects of the 1870s er robson who wrote a book about architecture and school architecture and he spent such a lot of time talking about ventilation and and it's so interesting because the ventilation they were thinking about then was probably you know preventing uh you know sort of all the pollution in victorian london and it's so fascinating to think that that came that was a value um when COVID came along, you know, they would never have anticipated that all of those, that ventilation and windows they built in would have come in so handy. But as you say, I guess the flip side is you get the ventilation, but they're very drafty, they're cold, they cost a lot to heat. And the flip side of that is they might have been great in 2020 with the pandemic, but then in 2022, we had an energy crisis. And I know schools were really concerned about their budgets and energy bills and actually having lots and lots of drafty windows in an energy crisis is, is not great. So swings and roundabouts, I guess. I mean, I think that in terms of climate change mitigation, there's been you know long conversation about 
uh, how to improve the performance of buildings because you can do the sums in, in different ways, but I think it's roughly half of the emissions. Maybe this is you know quite a long time ago now, but they were down, you know, could be allocated to the built environments, and about half of that was related to, to heating. Obviously, as thermal performance has been increased in building regulations, as the you know the energy supplies have become greener, the the focus is now on embodied uh, carbon uh, within the building structure. So having an existing building and reusing it is by far the best thing we could possibly do. And if it means that we have to add another layer of windows or put in some extra insulation, you know, the, those those issues of improving the thermal performance can be dealt with without starting from from scratch and and do it in a, a very efficient sort of carbon way. So um, you know, if the spaces are still good and useful and the right size and they're in the right city or the right place in town or, uh, you know, all those other things, then reuse and refurbishment is, is going to more and more be the, the, the driver. I think, you know, Marks and Spencer's found that recently with their very uh, uh, well-known planning application, which was, was refused uh, in London because they, they wanted to knock their building down and uh, they've had to go back and think think again. So I, th- I think, you know, socially we're, we're going to be looking at things quite quite differently. I think now might be a good point to talk about rack a little bit. It's been in the news a lot, but I think still it's quite difficult to get a handle on what exactly rack is and why it was such a popular material. Could you tell us a bit about its its history and its use? Yeah, and and what does it stand for? Is it is it re- reinforced? aerated autoclave concrete is that right like it is well done i think you get 10 out of 10 for what a mouthful tell us, tell us more about it yeah i mean the marketing board for this product didn't really do a great job did they i mean what a what a name so um it's really simple reinforced for there's little steel bars in it aerated there's a collection of ingredients there's cement and other things and there's a chemical reaction when it's all mixed together with aluminium it produces hydrogen bubbles and it sort of puffs up. And then this is poured into moulds and put in the oven, autoclaved, to cure. Uh, and it sort of sets into blocks. And and then they've stuck concrete on the end because I think it has some cement in there. But it doesn't bear any sort of resemblance to the you know concrete that we would usually know and love. So there's no coarse aggregate in it. That's the first thing. So regular, everyday concrete has large chunks of gravel. 20 millimeter diameter roughly and sand and cement and water and that comes out about two and a half times the weight of water whereas if you broke a bit of rack off and put it in the sink it would probably float which is not always the great sign for a building material i i find but <laughs> yeah well i've seen all those newspaper articles comparing it to an aero bar which does does worry you <laughs> That, so, well, aero, yeah. that, that's a bit too soft. It's more of a crunchy. <laughs> you know, if you tapped a crunchy, you'd expect it to splinter. And that's the sort of thing that's been happening. It's, it's sort of been under stress and it's snapped. So like glass, um, a brittle material, very fast f- fracture problem. And then, 
you know, that's that's just really unacceptable as as far as the structural material goes. Really, uh, uh, there are multiple things. I mean, rack in itself is not an evil material. Aerated concrete uh, was invented. We can blame the Swedes. That's good to know. Uh, it was invented in Sweden. Unfortunately, I think it was us who maybe took it to the next level in the 1950s and started putting it into these reinforced products because aerated blocks are put into buildings all the time. Uh, Thermalite, I don't know if you've ever heard that's a trade name, the the, the grey blocks with a kind of squiggle across the front. You may or may not be able to visualise this, but they're in lots and lots and lots of buildings and will probably continue to be so. So aerated concrete in itself, it's lightweight, it's cheap, and it's very thermally insulated. So in terms of creating a nice warm house or a building, it, it does a good job. But it, from about the 1950s, people started making it into roof panels. No one ever thought it, it was a good idea to make it into a floor panel. So I think that immediately flags you to the idea that it's never been considered a particularly brilliant material. My old boss told me a story about he was working in a university on the south coast as a site engineer at the time, uh, having site experience. Uh, he'd helped to design the building in the office and they went to see it being built and they had a huge roof over the main hall and they had proper concrete ribs and then between these ribs they had rack panels and the specialist contractor got one of the panels out set it up in front of the site hut got all of the contractors and the designers out and said look at this he jumped on it and it cracked and broke now i thought the next part of the story would be so we decided not to use it but that 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 wasn't what they said the 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 advice was right guys if you're installing it 20 meters up in the air don't stand on the panels (laughs) there's been a huge shift in construction over the years in terms of attitudes to risk you know you just wouldn't be able to use that now so is it not used now? So you said in the 1950s it started to be used. Yes. When did it sort of stop? Is it not being used in buildings now? Or? 1980s alerts began to arrive that, that things were maybe not so good. Of course, there was, there was a lot of uh, change at that point about safety and improving safety on building sites. And a lot of work was being done. And in the 90s, some new laws were passed. I have heard that it had stretched into the 90s in some cases. But if it was well-made rack panels and well-looked after, well-detailed, because I want some of the problems is that the, it didn't have enough bearing length where it's been sitting, and then it's when the roof has leaked and not been maintained, um, it's suddenly cracked. And So I think we'll find that water is, is a real problem for, for these roofs. But, you know, water getting into roofs causes problems for all building materials, and we've seen that in you know, modern school buildings where they've been built out of panelised timber systems. It, it sort of seeps in and nobody knows until you get sort of large cracks appearing. But with with rack, this sudden failure mechanism is just unacceptable, really, as a building. You know, in any building, but in particularly in a school. So, and it's not just schools, is it? it be, there are other buildings, other public sector, not just public sector, but there's other buildings that have been closed over this. So it's clearly something from the 50s to the 90s that was being used, but and, and now it just isn't. Now, now, you know, we're, we're not building with that anymore. I mean, the other wonder material, of course, from the 20th century was asbestos. And prior to that, lead paint. And all these things, a lot of the, the way of dealing with them is not to, to tear them out, you see, and that's the same with frat. You can encapsulate 
and maintain them in situ that just improves the safety. So the guidance on dealing with rack is not just to say, oh, it, you know, it has to be removed. You you have to risk assess it. You know, you see whether it's sh- showing signs of distress. You, you maybe make some investigations. Depending on where it is or what condition, you might take it out. You might choose to monitor it or you, you might put up a framework underneath with lots of plywood and just, you know, make sure it, it can't fall down. So there's different ways of dealing with it. Obviously, the, it's horrendous that that it's got to the point where there have been a few collapses because it has been flagged. And I, I think, I suppose, it's just that there are many other instances where buildings do get quite a lot of abuse and they, they do stand, they do take a lot of, of punishment most of most of the time. But in this instance, this material is not quite so forgiving. So you said it was introduced in the 50s. And one of the things we spoke about in our first episode was there was this huge, a huge premium on speed post-war because you had a baby boom and you had lots of buildings that had been destroyed in the war. So it was really important to, 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 to build new schools. We wanted to talk about that a little bit, the sort of post, post-war school building, which is another huge kind of school building programme, maybe like equivalent to the sort of 1870s one. I mean, RAC came in the 50s, so kind of around about part of that of, of that time. So is there a lot, was there a lot there post-war to do with speed and, and, and then people compromise on quality and, 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 you know, cost is also an issue. So what were the kind of factors post-war in that, that post-war baby boom? I think politically there was a massive shift in the sense that wanting to, you know, social responsibility and, and, and doing the, the right thing. So obviously making new schools and it being an optimistic future, the country had, had fought, a, fought a war and, and, and to repay that kind of a debt, I suppose, in terms of making new facilities. But at the same time, they had to be cheap and they had to be quick. It, it's not necessarily an issue of quality in this case, but I think one of lack of resources. They, they needed to be really spare with, with what they were doing. There was no excesses. You know, the Victorians had a lot of materials and a lot of resources. It was a shortage, wasn't it? You know, rationing was probably still on the go. So there's a shortage everywhere. And so it was, well, what, how do we make more with less? And I think rack fits the bill. It's very cheap and the, there isn't um, a coarse aggregate in it. Uh, it's lighter. You, you, you can move more of these things around. So the many, many advantages. I think rack might sort of be becoming a symbol for all sorts of things that are terrible with the building industry, but obviously there are lots and lots of prefabricated elements of buildings. We use lintels and floor planks and uh, cladding systems, all sorts of things, you know, come together. But obviously post-war, very famously, were prefabricated houses, prefabricated schools. Um, this is another mouthful. I mean, we're not very good with uh, we're great with acronyms in the building industry, but this was CLASP, the Consortium of Local Authorities Special Programme, which were system buildings, structurally quite robust, but unfortunately riddled with asbestos. So they've left another different type of legacy uh, to be tidied up. I, I actually work with, I mean, this is going to be really controversial, but I actually work with some architects who won't put MDF into buildings because they think that's the next material of the future that we'll be dealing with because it's full of pretty nasty glue oh uh, right so in, in 20 30 years time people are going to be saying you heard it here first yeah why why did they build all these uh, schools with mdf okay handy andy will be persona non grata <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah so on that subject of future proofing we talked about sort of two big waves of school building 1870s with the first education act post-war with the baby boom 
And another big wave was uh, for state schools was under New Labour. So the big building schools for the future programme. When, when I started teaching, when I was training, that was in full swing. And the teaching practice that I did, I, you know, you spend a couple of weeks at different schools. So you, you cycle through quite a few schools in a short space of time. And it was really interesting. I, mean, I remember one school I was in, they were having their, genuinely, it was a post-war prefab that was meant to last a few years and it had gone on for sort of 50, 60 years. And they were having it demolished and a building schools for the future built. And I was actually, it was one of the first lessons I ever taught. I was teaching a class or a sort of 10 minute section and the diggers were outside destroying a bit of the prefab. And <laughs> no, no, no one paid any attention to me. They were all much more interested in the digger. Um, to be honest, I was too. Um, it was quite quite fun. So I feel like in, in a little way, I sort of went through, you know, quite a few different schools um, that were having their BSF buildings and, and some, I would say some more successful than others. And I, I will say that a few of us, you know, all of us who were training at the time had our sort of stories. And you did tend to hear even then sort of horror stories about buildings that sort of hadn't been designed with the practicalities of, 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 of teaching in mind. And there were lots of anecdotes that went round and, and, you know, who knows, you know, they're all accurate or not. But I remember one that really stuck in my mind and maybe it's apocryphal was that obviously what you want now in most classrooms is a overhead projector to project uh, onto the, the whiteboard at the front. And the bulbs in the overhead projectors are very expensive. And the story from, you know, one, one school was that the the architect didn't like the way that the overhead projectors they were quite messy you know they're up in the ceiling and they don't look very elegant so he put them all into cupboards at the back of the room with a kind of slit to project and the problem with that is that they would overheat in the cupboards the bulbs would burn out and this school was going through these very expensive bulbs at three or four times the rate that a normal school was projected to or that they budgeted for and, and that's just one sort of small anecdote, but I guess it speaks to that tension between idealism and practicality. And there'd probably be a lot of teachers, you know, maybe it's unfair, who would say you get you get sort of architects who are not thinking about the practicalities of school life and they do things like that and it makes things, you know, very unhelpful for everybody. So what do you think about that, that balance between, between the two, between, yeah, getting something that does look nice but is also functional and useful. This is the tension that has been going on since since the beginning, you know. Um, I mean, it was Vitruvius, Roman, <laughs> the commodity, firmness and delight. Um, and, you know, this is constant trade-off of these different factors. Is it workable? Is it beautiful? Is it safe? And, you know, it's the holy grail, really, trying to... to um, to balance then but if you think about it these huge building programs that suddenly burst into life and they go hell for leather and you're trying to do all these things all at once who's doing it you you you're asking people who've maybe not designed a school before to suddenly design a school because you're asking people all across the country to do it at the same time so so there's a shortage of people who've maybe been there seen that you know learnt the lessons and the other issue is that obviously we do learn things from every project, but it takes a long time for these things to filter back. 
to learn at a fast enough rate and to 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 learn these i mean that's that's a really tricky lesson to learn because i mean maybe the architect never heard about that story that's that's the thing that you know you were all talking about it but i wonder if the the yeah. architect who yeah. left the project yeah. you know what i had a really great yeah. detail for yeah. a, a projector <laughs> in the cupboard let's do that one again you know you could you could yeah. hear that conversation yeah. uh, there you see there there is a, a bit in the appointments for consultants especially designers uh, post occupancy evaluation but it's it's so often cut out because it costs some money to get everyone to come back and and have a discussion about what what did or didn't work these these bespoke product products i mean this if you think about it, it's not coming off a factory line where you're doing this all the time it's an individual creation one-off often and if you, if it was a ship, you would have two years worth of sea trials before you kind of let anyone in it. Uh, but with buildings, you open the door, everyone's in, and and off you off you go. Do you think there is a case for then having more of a template for these big? If you're going to have a big pro, you know, big funding project like that, of, of having something that's a bit more, or do you think that just causes its own problems? Oh, you you absolutely do. The, especially state schools, very very prescribed. You know, the funding is absolutely rigid. You have a set number of rooms that will be provided and you formulas for the how much corridor space and so on. Uh, so it's all very tightly, tightly controlled. But then you're down to the sort of level of detail of the joinery. It sounds like that was a very dedicated architect. And so I'm sort of loath to, <laughs> I'm loath to say, you know, because, because actually, the, there, there are many schools with the, that particular programme which are led by contractors and it's very much based on, you know, speed and, and cost and quality. Thinking about the quality of the space particularly is just really not considered. You've got this formula, we have these spaces. Some of the schools near us, slightly despairing, they've got classrooms with windows that overlook internal rooms, you know, no external window, no external light, borrowed light from other spaces. And I do think there's probably scope for visiting a lot of these schools and learning lessons and, and gathering all those lessons for, for sure. I think there was a lot done in a short space of time and that's not usually ever good for learning you know, learning to do things well, is it? Yeah, absolutely. And then I think the, the problem is when you have sort of buildings that go wrong, it's sort of like anything, people then become more reluctant to spend money on new ones if they see that, that it hasn't worked out right. And, and you sort of saw that happening, I think, after building schools for the future, that there was a feeling that, oh, well, there were the, some of these flagship schools that didn't deliver what they promised. Um, and then the, the budgets get cut and then you end up in a sort of vicious spiral. Yeah, that's why well, it's all the more important to, to get these things right. The other thing is, of course, that, I mean, it's not just the people who are designing the buildings that are learning. The people who are commissioning the buildings have maybe not commissioned the building before. Uh, and it is a joint effort between the client and the, the, the design team and the builders. And you can't, without, you know, you can't do it if any one of those are uh, absent and, and it was an independent school, but I, one of my first jobs, there was a head teacher who'd been to the States. She had found this amazing teaching model, which had a particular layout of classrooms, which was slightly unusual. I wouldn't like to describe what it was, but it, it, the, the way in which the classroom was arranged, it, it had a particular size of classroom, which was slightly different. The, the windows were in a different orientation, and, and she commissioned a whole classroom block for the school, on the basis of this model 
and then retired. And I later heard, <laughs> and then I later okay. heard, I mean, she was absolutely chuffed with it, but, um, <laughs> but of course the staff who were then in it and then they had a new head teacher, they were all sort of slightly bemused. And this is, this is a significant problem because very often the people who are commissioning are not necessarily the ones who are going to be in it. And then there's this inherent tension, disappointments often, uh, well, you'd hope that they aren't. But commissioning a building is a really, you know, you, you have to be very skillful. I, I would say the best client, and it's not an education one, uh, the best client I've ever worked for is the Maggie's Cancer Caring Charity because they their whole ethos is, is based around the, about well-being and understanding that the building is entirely and integrally linked to their service. It's not a sort of a bolt-on that happens to be there which I think in certainly some, some public sector projects, it's sort of delivered on the basis of a formula. Um, no one's particularly um, invested in it. You, you have to have a custodian. A building has to have a custodian, you know, not, not only to commission it, but to then look after it and, and maintain it. Otherwise it falls into, you know, disuse. Someone's got to have that, that ownership and not retire as soon as they've commissioned it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The, 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 the thing about Maggie's is they, um, they really understand how the building affects how people are in it. This might sound a little bit sacrilegious, but we, we wanted to ask, do you truly think that a school's built environment can make a difference to people's learning experience? Does it matter having a nice building? Well, I'm biased. I'm, I'm involved in designing buildings. So yes, <laughs> uh, but I do. I, I think it does. It does make a difference. It can make things very much better, or, or equally, it can make things very difficult. I think I heard heard um, someone say that it, it's almost like the third teacher. You know, after family and school staff, the building you know is implicated in in the delivery of or and uh, and the atmosphere well the whole sort of business of the school i mean was it winston churchill said we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us and that's absolutely absolutely true maggie's are really interesting because they've thought about it so deeply the nhs does a wonderful job of the physical but they really aren't terribly careful with the the spirit part uh, Maggie Jenks, who who really had the inspiration for this, as she she had cancer and she sadly died, but she had the idea for the centre because she was given her terminal diagnosis and then asked to sit on a plastic chair in a dark corridor, and thought that you know this doesn't work. So for them, they have no signage on the doors. They have a kitchen table, and the whole building is set up to be domestic in scale. But it, you, if you walk in. There's no reception desk. It's not like a public building that you would ever imagine. They've thought it through in such a detailed way, and it works so wonderfully. They obviously have very high-quality buildings to back back that up, and it really lifts you. as You can go in there, and it, I think it really boosts the people who work there, and it boosts the people who, who visit. I can't say I've ever had that experience walking into a state school I'm sorry yeah that's it um it's a lot more functional and I think that's the the thing isn't it we were saying there's there's lots of state schools out there who are doing a brilliant job probably not in great buildings and they'd say that themselves that the building is not is not great they're doing it despite yeah they're doing it against against the odds you know the building is not helping them it's, it's making it harder and as you say in that that case with Maggie's that what's allowed that to happen is the thought that's gone into it from the people who want to build it that they've you know given it so much thought about what they want and what they want it to deliver i was on a 
a panel for the RIBA Awards East London panel a few years back, and we had a really big debate about whether or not to include a school. Um, it was a private finance school, and it was, it was in East London. And I really, really rated it because the architects had tried so hard with very tight budgets. You know, we were comparing apples with oranges. We had a reception fit-out in the city that had a budget that was four times per square metre what they, they had to do with the school. You know, they didn't even have to build an external envelope that met building regulations. You know, they had just a reception desk and some lights and a bit of sculpture. The head of the panel, who was a very commercial architect, just really didn't rate the school at all because it was very, you know, it was very spare. And the massing, which is in terms of how the spaces fit together, had 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 to be very, you know, it wasn't very exciting. It was definitely, well, there's the hall and there's the classroom block. But the way they'd done it with the detailing, the decoration, they'd got daylight that could go all the way through to the bottom floor inside the building so that all levels you had daylight in the corridor, central circulation space. I was so impressed. And, and I just, you know, I really argued very hard that they should be included and showed other schools from my local area, saying, you know, there's the massing that is in the hands of someone who's maybe less attentive. That's how it might look. And there's no light in some of those internal rooms. You know, it's, there's no windows. And uh, so anyway, my fellow jury mates were mostly swayed and we, it did go through and, and get an award. But you've got to be able to get examples that are worth celebrating and then have them as exemplars because otherwise the formulas take over. And that's why I was sort of hesitant to criticise the, the chap with the cupboard. Well, I say chap, but the person with the cupboard. Because they were trying, uh, which... <sighs> Yeah, no, I know. I don't want to be too, you know, like I say, it's these stories that you hear sort of second, third hand, but they maybe illustrate something. But but that's a, a lovely moment to end on, that, you know, there are schools out there being built brilliantly, even if they don't have the budgets. There are people sort of innovating and coming up with these ideas about the daylight and all those things that are so important. Um, so it is possible. And if the government ever do release any any money <laughs> for, for for rebuilding some of these uh, rack schools, and ho- hopefully we'll get more schools like that. Well, that's that's it. I mean, I think we do have to try and find the examples and you know shine that shine the light on them. We do have to be careful to use materials that that will last a decent amount of time and try to try to build school buildings that that inspire people and 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 make them comfortable in the learning environment. That's that's the main thing, isn't it? And so they can do well in their studies and carry on and do more exciting things later. Mm-hmm.